Welcome to the Internet History Podcast. I'm your host, Brian McCullough. So, a quick little fun episode today. Some of you might remember the episode we did a few years ago with Rod Canyon, one of the founders of Compact Computer. Well, it turns out that that very story, Rod's story, the Compact story, has been turned into a feature-length documentary film called Silicon Cowboys, and that film is opening in theaters this Friday. Actually, theaters and all the modern channels, iTunes, Amazon Video, Google Play, On Demand, all that good stuff. So just this morning, I spoke with the director of the film, Jason Cohen, to give us the behind the scenes of the making of the movie. In the show notes, you can see the cities that the film will be playing in this weekend, as well as a link to the movie's homepage, if you want to check out the trailer first. I've actually seen the film already, so I can say with 100% confidence that if you're a fan of this podcast, then I guarantee that you're going to be a fan of this movie. So please enjoy this conversation with director Jason Cohen, and then check out Silicon Cowboys this weekend. Jason Cohen, thanks for coming on the Internet History Podcast. Thank you for having me. So we're going to talk today about uh, your your new documentary film, uh, Silicon Cowboys. Uh, we've actually had Rod Canyon on the show before, so um, listeners will be familiar with the Compact story. But I'm curious uh, how you got interested in, in the Compact story, how, how you first heard about this and, and uh, decided this would make a, a good documentary. Sure. Well, the, the you know, I had uh, sort of always known a little bit about compact and, and a little bit about the story I, I probably not as in depth as uh maybe i i am now uh, acquainted with it but um the the project came to be through the uh one of the producers of the film russ dinnerstein and uh ross is actually an old family friend of rod canyon's and they were at ross's brother's wedding uh having a beer and um rod had put his book out open and um Rod uh, Ross just basically said to him, you know, I read the book and I think maybe we should make a movie, make a documentary. And Rod said, sure. And um, Ross then reached out to me through our other producer, Glenn Zipper, who's an old friend of mine. And I read the book um, and then ended up uh, meeting with Rod and, and Ross and talked about it. And I just thought there was a great narrative there um, to, that could be told in a documentary form. And I also just honestly felt it was a story that people didn't really know and, and should know and felt like it's a story that impacts us all and we maybe just don't realize it. Um, so that was that was sort of how things all came about and that was sort of the main impetus to do it. I was also um, extremely drawn to this idea of doing a film about the 80s and the PC industry in the 80s and, and all the um, fun that you could have with some of the nostalgia of it and, you know, archival footage and the music um and and things of that and you know also i you know i grew up as a kid in the 80s and i remember those old computers and have fond memories of of what they were like before we were uh walking around with a cell phone in our pocket well it had to help um halt and catch fire coming out a couple years ago because uh, obviously yep. the first season of halt and catch fire sort of cribs from this story quite a bit and, and you have the the showrunners from halt and catch fire uh in the documentary as well 
Yeah. So, you know, Halt and Catch Fire, you know, that particularly that pilot episode, you know, when they're reverse engineering an IBM uh, PC is certainly uh, very in line with, with the story we're telling. And, and yeah, we reached out to Chris Cantwell, the co-creator of Halt and Catch Fire, um, and he said, sure, I'd love to be in the film and um, gave us great insights as, as far as some of their inspirations. And, you know, and he he certainly said that Compact was the big inspiration. He's from Texas. Obviously, the Halt and Catch Fire takes place in Texas, at least in season one. Uh, and I'm a fan of the show, and I think they do a great job with the show as well. So. So let's let's get into the story a little bit. Uh, again, we've we've uh, brought it up on the show before, but um, you actually spoke to uh, all the founders of Compact, uh, not just Rod Canyon. So um, oh. my impression of it was is that um, these guys are all basically uh, Texas Instruments lifers, essentially, and it's almost mm-hmm. like they have a, a fear of missing out about what's going on in Silicon Valley. Is that the impression that you got from from talking to them? Yeah, yeah, it is. I mean, like you said, they were, you know, lifers, I guess is a good term. They were at Texas Instruments with comfortable jobs, uh, you know, families and mortgages and, and no plan to to rock the boat and, and, and disrupt that lifestyle. But um, they started seeing what was going on and, and included in that was a trip they all took together out to Silicon Valley for a project they were doing for TI. And I think it opened that, that trip opened their eyes a little bit. They kind of saw what was going on out here. Um, you know, I live in the Bay Area. Sorry, I should have pointed that out. Um, and they saw what was going on in Silicon Valley and um, sort of some of the, you know, both, I think, the, the different approach people were taking um, to this new industry. And also they saw some of the, you know, uh, the upside, which would be some of the, uh, the wealth that people were accumulating already at that point. Um, you know, and we tell a story in the film that they were at a meeting in their three-piece suits, uh, the three guys from Houston, and, you know, they say a VP of engineering pulls up in a Ferrari, and they were just blown away that that could even be um, feasible. So, um, so yeah, I think it was a little bit, like you said, of maybe they realized there's something out there. But they also, I think they were also realizing they, they weren't that happy at TI was another thing, and they wanted to do something that was more invigorating for themselves. Well, one of one of the most fun things to to do when you're watching the movie is you know to compare what startup culture is like today versus what it was like back then yeah. um yeah. you know it, everyone i talk to especially in the internet era most of it is involving software and things like that but these guys have to literally create a hardware company there has to be factories and things yeah. like that and and also like yeah. there was a great anecdote about how just raising money it's there's not that culture of vc money sloshing around everywhere yeah. they literally had to go to a bank and get bank loans yeah 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 well you know we we, we talk about in the film yeah it, you know nowadays uh you leave you leave your mba program after the first year or if you even get to that you move out to silicon valley you you, you have your startup and you hope to get an ipo within a couple of years and you you know in three years you're a billionaire um, that was never um, anywhere close to being on their radar. These guys just wanted to start a company because they wanted to do something different. They got a bunch of their friends together, all the people that came over from TI, their old colleagues. Uh, yeah, and they had to. They did put together a business plan. You know, they sketched the 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 the, the uh, original portable in the back of a placemat in a diner in Houston. And they put that in the actual business plan that they presented. Um, you know, they talk about in the film how, you know, they had, you know, mortgages and then families to support, um, you know, and they were, they were fortunate enough to get a meeting with Ben Rosen from seven Rosen funds. And he put up the first, the, the first funding, but it was not, it was sort of 
like you said, where you, you, you know, people were just looking to go get a bank loan. Um, it was not this wild west of going, you know, to these angel investors and getting millions and millions of dollars right off the bat. So yeah, it was, and not to, not only that, what you just mentioned was these guys were starting a hardware company. <laughs> so this is not, um, like today where most of the, you know, most of the stars, I mean, just try to imagine somebody today starting a new hardware company, mm-hmm. not only that to compete with, you know, what probably would be Apple or whoever it may be, the biggest hardware companies out there today. Another fun anecdote comparing the the um, the times, they they made a point of talking about how um, they were so generous with providing their employees with free coffee and soft drinks. Like that was, yeah, those were the big perks yep. for for working hard in those. Yeah, days. well, but but it's funny, you know, they, I think it it, it you know it, it sort of highlights what these their mentality was and. And we, we wanted to put that in because the culture was a really big deal to them um, and how they treated people. And I think um, without, you know, getting to specifics, I think it's the antithesis, a lot of what we see today um, in this in this computing culture that is that is extremely cutthroat. And obviously, there's a few few names that come up that I think are, are known for that and known for, for, for making their stake based on using an attitude like that. But but these guys were from the get-go, um, you know, th- this idea that they used to buy soft drinks and bring them into the office when they only had 10 people there. Um, that really is the seed of what we see now when you walk into these Silicon Valley cafeterias and there's a sushi chef and, you know, everything else at your, uh, at your hands that you could ever want. Um, and, you know, as we also talk in the film, we have Alec Berg from Silicon Valley talk about, you know, massage therapists and whatever it may be. But these guys were trying to establish a culture like that where they, where they, you know, they were respecting their employees. It wasn't necessarily trying to catch the best employees and keep them and, and sway them from going to the competing company. They just wanted everyone to have uh, a lifestyle where they were appreciated for their work. And they were, they were, they were all working many long hours to try to get this company off the ground. So the two really, you know, fascinating, I don't know if you're a business study or the fascinating stories in the story are, are first the, the reverse engineering of the, you know, the IBM BIOS and, and the platform and yep. all that and, and having to do it in the clean room. And if you even looked at the yep. code, then you couldn't, you couldn't be involved at yep. all. You couldn't be in the room. Yep. Um, what, what did they tell you about that, about how, how difficult that was or how gutsy or th- that, that yeah, sort of well, effort was? Well, you know, basically IBM had had essentially set up a firing line where they any company that had come in and tried to um, use their code because the IBM PC had, you know, just skyrocketed in 1981 when it was released and everyone was just trying to catch up. Um, So there were a bunch of companies that were trying to catch up. And the way they did it was they just copied IBM's code and that was illegal. Um, And so. IBM was just suing comp- these little companies and putting them out of business. There's a long list of them that just couldn't survive and, and um, couldn't handle a lawsuit from, from, from IBM. So when Compaq came along, they knew they had to do it differently. And they really were, um, you know, so strict as far as the, the, the ethics and what they followed. And like you said, they, they didn't, they couldn't, no one could even look at an IBM manual. And if they did, they, they could not be involved in the project. And they ripped up, they would rip out the pages of the manual that had the code. And they, the guys in the clean room had to do it all from, um, basically all from just looking at it and trying to figure it out themselves. So a lot of trial and error. Um, and, and, and not only that, they, they did it to a fault where they, they, they really wanted to make sure that every single piece 
of software. They tried everything to make sure everything ran as perfectly as it did. And the keystrokes were all the same and everything was the same as sitting down and using an IBM PC. And, um, they, you know, they, they, they crossed their T's and they dot their eyes and they, and it, in the end, it, it really paid off. That was something that people realized. Not, not only that, it got to a point where their, their computers were running the IBM software even better than the IBM PC at some point. Well, and that leads to the, the second really amazing story, which is um, Compaq leading the charge to create the, the industry standard. Um, I, you know, I, I think historically we would look back and we say, well, Microsoft took over the industry from within by you know, moving mm-hmm. the value proposition to software. But it, it's not mm-hmm. quite as simple as that. And, and Compaq plays a key role in literally wresting the, the standard away from IBM, taking it out of their, their clutches. It wasn't just software taking over. It was also physically claiming the hardware and the, the software standard. Yeah, I mean, you know, basically what happened was, you know, IBM, you know, Compaq made a, a pretty big dent with the portable, and then they had some success, a lot of success with their 386 computer that they, that they beat IBM to. Um, and then IBM just sort of said, we've had enough, and they put out the PS2, and the PS2 was – basically their way of saying this is the standard we have our own standard and there's nothing else is going to work with this computer and this is a standard and you have to buy ibm and you have to buy ibm software and nothing else is an option and you know compact just said no you're not going to keep stepping on all of us like this and they got together a big group of um a group of companies including nhc nec and hp and um and microsoft included in that and they put together this gang of nine who all came up with their own standard and said, no, we, people want a, 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 a standard that's compatible and all of us are going to get together and we're all doing this. We're not making any money off of this, uh, but this is so everybody can use um, any computer and be able to use what they want and not be forced with a gun to our head to use whatever you put out. And, and in the end, um, IBM was wrong. They, they took a huge misstep and people did, did understand that compatibility and um being in an open architecture was the way that the world wanted to go. Now, of course, uh, Apple had something to say about that eventually down the line, but I think everyone acknowledges that in, at this period of time, Apple was a, was a pretty small player in this market, um, you know, and is still considerably a small player in the PC market, if you look at mm-hmm. that. Mm-hmm. Uh, you actually got a couple of IBM people to talk to you. I wonder if, if that was difficult at all. I mean, obviously, the compact people are eager to tell their story of how brilliant they were, yeah. how it all worked out. But was, <laughs> it, was it difficult to get IBM to, to tell the other side of the story? You know, to be honest, it wasn't. Um, the IBM voices we have in the film were, were pretty frank about the missteps that IBM had taken. Uh, and I think, it's, I think it's widely acknowledged that they, they, they did drop the ball as far as PCs go. They were, they were, they were behind the ball to start. Um, and then the, the game plan, once they got there, just didn't it wasn't didn't make sense um, in trying to control things. So the, the the people we spoke to, you know, for the most part, were, were pretty frank about it. Now, you know, they some of the they they, they acknowledged, you know, we talk in the in the film a bit also that it was an IBM mentality and IBM culture of, you know, always win and and um, you know you never lose and and there was this this idea that you can't get fired for buying an IBM was what people used to say in the eighties if you were a working for your company and you went out to buy computers for your company, uh, if you bought an IBM, then you were safe. If you went with a competitor, then you were sort of putting your job on the line uh, in case things didn't work out. Um, And that mentality was there. 
So we wanted to stress that, but even, even the guys we interviewed, you know, they, they were acknowledged. They acknowledged that. That was something that just, when you worked there, you were the cream of the crop and no one could touch you. Uh, and so there was this arrogance that they, that, that was, you know, exuded. Uh, and they were, you know, they were pretty frank. Now, neither of them worked for IBM anymore. Um, and actually one of the, one of the people we spoke to in the film actually ended up going to Compaq after he left IBM. Um, so he had that to compare it to, although he, he still enjoyed his time at, at IBM from what he told us. So, um, um, but for the most part, for the most part, I think they, and a lot of the industry acknowledged that IBM just made missteps with the PC. Mm-hmm. And eventually left the PC industry entirely. Um, right. Rod, Rod Canyon is really sort of the star of, of the movie. And I thought yeah. it was interesting, you know, he's not like sort of that swashbuckling, brash startup bro that we're sort of used to. Yeah. Today. Like if, yeah. in, the, in the early pictures, he sort of looks like a nerdy 80s dad. But he, yeah, you, you, point exactly. out, you point out in the movie that it was almost like he had to transform into that role of being a CEO, of being a leader and maybe yeah. sort of groomed yeah. into that role. Yeah, totally. Um, you know, he is a nerdy looking engineer from Texas uh, with a with an accent and not a not a public speaker uh, when he becomes C when he starts out as CEO of the company. And they these guys basically drew straws to figure out who was going to be CEO because it was the three of them who started the company. Uh, he and Jim Harris and Bill Murto. Um, but, yeah, he he was forced to transform. They got him media training and they got him contact lenses and they got him new suits. Um, and he became very good at it. But the one thing I will say is he didn't become what we now see out of some of our tech, uh, CEOs and, and, and tech icons. And, you know, when we were making this film, I think we had it in the back of our head, particularly the, the jobs film had just come out. The jobs documentary had just come out and Rob is really the antithesis of, of, of that, that ethic of that ethos and, and what Steve jobs did. And obviously it was amazing what he achieved, but um, Rod Canyon did it in a very different manner. And this idea of, you know, Rob, there was no VIP parking at, um, at, at Compact because Rod believed that if you got to work first, you should get the first parking spot and, and be able to get to work and, and, and start going. So that, that, I think that's a good sort of uh, example of, of, the, of this sort of work ethic that um, was, was used there at Compact. And then we did want to, sort of go against what people think about now when they think of tech, <clears throat> big tech entrepreneurs, including Jobs or Zuckerberg or whoever it may be. A uh, couple real quick questions about the nuts and bolts of the film itself. Um, the, and, and let me, before, before, yeah. before you, uh, before if, uh, the nuts and bolts of the film or nuts and bolts of the computer? Because I'm much better about the nuts and bolts of the film than nuts, I am about nuts, the nuts actually, and bolts of the computer. Literally nuts and bolts of the film. Because <laughs> okay, um, great. The, the soundtrack is fantastic. And like, I yes. think that's so key to like getting you, like Stranger Things most recently proves this. Like it really helps you yeah, get yeah. into the era. Um, so yeah. so who, who did the soundtrack? And, and it's fantastic. So yeah, our, our composer is an extremely talented composer named Ian Holquist, and um, Ian was in the band uh, Passion Pit, which is a pretty, oh, yeah. uh, well, pretty well-known band. Um, and he actually um, left the band to go back to what his original passion was, which was composing and scoring for for TV and film. Um, and you know, we 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 sort of met we met fairly late in the process, um, and you know, we sat down and, and met, and I knew. I knew pretty early on that, that he was the right person. He, he collects old synthesizers. So, um, and when we first talked and I sort of told him some of my ideas about what I wanted this sound to be, 
uh, and really getting this sound of the eighties, including a lot of synth. Um, you know, I, I would bring up reference bands like Depeche Mode and some of the, the bands from the Manchester scene in the 1980s. And um, he totally got it. Um, and even though he's much younger than, than myself and, and he's, he, he was not uh, around in the eighties, he, he, he knows that music and he's well, you know, well versed in that music and just had so much fun playing around with all the synths that he has in the sounds. And I, I really let him go. I mean, I kind of, gave him ideas for the tone we want for different scenes because certainly some scenes are more dramatic but we have a lot of fun montage scenes with a lot of fun music to get you through and and we also knew that you know and particularly with you know your audience uh you know obviously is is sort of the audience that we know we uh, will really appreciate this film but we wanted to appear to a much wider audience and we knew that the music is a good way we could do that by sort of giving these computers some life um that may not have life for some people well, actually, speaking of giving computers life, it looked like maybe you had actual compact portables up and running to create some of the like <laughs> interstitial titles. Did you actually yes. pull that off, or is that camera trickery? So we we bought, I think, three or four uh, portables. Uh, Rod actually had one that he lent us, um, and then we bought a few more off eBay. Um, uh, and they worked. <laughs> Amazingly, they still work. And wow. um yeah, so we, we shot those extensively. You see those in the film. We have some really nice beauty shots of the compact portable. Um, and then what we did was we, we brought in a graphics person, and I said, listen, I want to mimic, I want these exact, I want the exact green screen monitor graphics um, from the original compact for the film, for all of our graphics and our interstitials. And um, they went in and they, they took it and they copied it exactly. Uh, they didn't, we didn't film those, but they went in, figured out what that font was, the color, the, that, that glowing green, which I really wanted, which for me was very evocative of my youth. I remember those first computers with that, that green glow coming off of it. And um, our graphics guys went in and they, they figured it out and um, were able to recreate those. And then we were able to use that for all of our um, titles and, and all of our you know, interstitials throughout the film. Uh, so, final question: You, um, Jason, have been involved in several other, you know, well-regarded documentaries, um, Academy Award-nominated mm-hmm. documentaries. I'm curious if uh, there, if you felt like you had to take a different approach to a business story, an entrepreneurial story, <laughs> to try to turn it into into a compelling narrative. Yeah, I think you know, all films are different, and and to be honest, I've I've spent years working on pretty heavy uh, subject matter. Uh, and even I'll go over to the line to depressing and uh, at times. Um, so for me, this film was sort of a, um, I, I did look at it when I first, you know, looked into it as sort of a, 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 a fun release. It was going to be a fun film for me to make where, and, and not only that, there was a great narrative there. And I think as a documentary filmmaker, if you have a great narrative, that's not something that always comes along. And I really wanted to, you know, play to that as, 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 as much as we could. And, you know, we sort of laid out the film more as a narrative film with plot points. And, um, and I, and I, and I can also, you know, it's, it's a David versus Goliath story. And we knew that if we could, if we could highlight that David versus Goliath narrative that we could appeal to a broader audience, because anyone can relate to that, whether it's a sports story or whether it's a business story, or, you know, in this case, it's a computer tech story. Uh, and like I said, well, we, we know we're going to appeal to a very large segment of people who are tech minded, but we did want to appeal to a wider audience. I could just see this as a little guy taking on the big guy um, and, and, and mostly winning uh, in a way. 
So, um, so yeah, it was, it was fun to do, uh, but it certainly, you know, every film I have to take a different approach and tone is different. And, um, you know, and obviously this, this film, we do get into some heavier subject matter in, in, with the demise of the company. Um, so yeah, but there was, there was a, there was just a little bit of all that to build this, this narrative and, and this link through the whole thing. So the, the film is Silicon Cowboys and it's coming out this Friday, the 16th, right? Yes, Friday the 16th, and you can go to SiliconCowboysMovie.com, which will take you to uh, the page where you can see uh, we're in theaters across the country. Um, I think we're in about 15, uh, 15 to 20 cities uh, to start, um, and then potentially expanding from there, and then also going to be you know available on VOD. So, and all that information is uh, SiliconCowboysMovie.com if so you go to the website. Also iTunes and, and Google Play as well? Yeah, yeah, iTunes, Google Play, Amazon, uh, On Demand. Uh, there's, a, they're all listed. If you go to the website, they're all listed there. So, um, and 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 uh, and I will note the soundtrack is also available on Friday, which you um, also pointed out. So the the soundtrack is available on iTunes, um, uh, starting on Friday as well. Well, listen, everybody listening to this podcast, I guarantee you, if you're if you're a fan of this podcast, you'll be a huge fan of the movie. So. Uh, check it out on Friday. Uh, Jason Cohen, thanks for coming on the show, and um, best of luck with the movie. Thank you so much. Thanks for having us.